Hello, welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. And welcome to our live show. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives and our world, the world around us. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This episode is part of our live podcast episode series. Each month, members of Design Museum get a chance to enjoy a live show and ask their questions for the guests. Today, we are talking about wayfinding and experiential graphic design in the built environment. Before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. Check out our We Design Exhibition conversation cards. These incredibly well-designed cards bring our We Design Exhibition to your home, right to you. We Design is an exhibition that we put together that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries, and it includes statistics and topics of discussion around diversity and equity in design. The deck can be used alone or with friends. Hey, you can even use it over Zoom. Why not? And it's available to order now on designmuseumeverywhere.org. And with that, on to this week's topic. When you look at the world around you, what are the landmarks, brands, signage you associate with a place? Maybe it's the Eiffel Tower and you think about Paris or the giant golden arches when you pass a McDonald's or even just the signage in your neighborhood, right? These are indicators of space and place that guide people through the physical environment. And as technology improves, and so do the wayfinding techniques and branding techniques that help us sort of orient ourselves in the world. So I'm joined by our guest co-host, Katie Muse, who is a co-chair of the Boston chapter of SEGD, that's the Society for Experiential Graphic Design. And joining us a bit later is our special guest, Cliff Selbert, the founding partner of Selbert Perkins Design. Together, we'll chat about the future of experiential graphic design and wayfinding. To start our chat off, we have Katie Muse. Katie has over 17 years of experience designing communication and experiential graphics, and she brings her knowledge to her role as co-chair of the Boston chapter of SEGD. As a designer and strategist, she is passionate about creative problem solving, design strategy, storytelling, teaching, and mentoring. Previously, Katie has worked as a practice leader at SGA, where she directed the Branded Environment Studio. Now, working as an independent consultant, Katie's recent experience includes experiential graphic design for Finovax, Boston University, and Mill Creek Residential. Katie's work captures the essence of brand environments and experiences. Katie, welcome. It's great to have you here. Oh, Sam, thank you so much. Thank you on behalf of myself and my co-chairs, Jessica Grant and Sam Pease. SEGD Boston is so excited to collaborate today. Yeah, I love working with you all. And it's great that we can do it in this virtual world. Let's just get into it. When, when we were preparing for this interview, I saw a talk you gave and you said you've always had an interest in three-dimensional things. And so I'm curious, what makes designing two-dimensional graphics for a three-dimensional environment captivating and exciting for you? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, I've always had an interest in, in 3D. And it's it's one of those things where looking back, you can see how your career, like the way the path went almost easier in retrospect. I think, you know, when you're interested in 3D, there's not a lot of training or resources out there on how to do that. So I feel 
like I've had the experience of really organically growing and going to school for communication design at Syracuse, it was a lot about, you know, conceptual design thinking and storytelling. How are you targeting your target audience? And being able to learn that design process was really helpful and laid a foundation for me to move my career in a three-dimensional direction when there weren't specific classes on that, (laughs) you know, kind of moving through um, and expanding my role at SGA, I relied on, you know, SEGD resources and fellows like Cliff that we're going to talk to today and others, and even collaborating with fabricators to actually help me learn the craft. So you really can take that creative problem solving process and start to apply it to the built environment. Yeah. That's great. I love this term, as I mentioned, experiential graphic (laughs) design. And I want to have you dig into it for us because our listeners probably have this image in their minds of what graphic design is, right? So what is experiential graphic design? So it's interesting for me because when I was starting out, everyone was calling this thing that can be a lot of different design things because design is everywhere. Um, (laughs) We were calling it environmental graphic design. And as the field grew and information about it grew and the rise of kind of tech innovation and interactive design came into be, SEGD turned from the Society for Environmental Graphic Design to the Society for Experiential Graphic Design because we really were able to become the intersection between those two points of what's happening in the environment and how are you interacting with it, whether it's, you know, through a web interface or interacting with it physically. So it really encompasses all those things. And the beauty of it is that we really are, SEGD's kind of coined this, these terms that we're the vanguards, we're the multidisciplinary misfits, right? So we've all <laughs> gotten to this place in our career from totally different stories. And you'll hear from Cliff as starting in landscape design. And, you know, it's people on the fabrication side, it's interior designers, it's graphic designers, it's all of these different great design thinking minds coming together to solve these challenges. Yeah, I love that. The, the misfits. <laughs> <laughs> Your career has taken you into all, you know, designing brands, experiences, environments. Can you share like some of the challenges that each one of those poses when you frame it within physical space? Yeah. So they all have a lot of similarities, as I mentioned, in terms of the design process. We're always targeting an audience. If you're designing for a brand, I've done a lot of work for corporate headquarters and workspaces. So you'll, you'll have different sets of constituents. With those, you'll have different tools that you can use, different um, different media that you can do to employ the changes. You know, in a, a branded workspace, you might be working with someone that uh, or a, a, a company that has a very well defined brand. They might hand you a manual, like Puma. I worked with, for instance, and we were given a red book and we had a lot of rules to follow. Or you're working with another company that they have a website up and it's orange and they hate orange. So you're actually helping them redesign that story. You know, when you think about creating experiences or doing wayfinding in different places, you know, then the challenges become putting yourself in the shoes of the the user or the person experiencing it and trying to make sure that you make the message you're trying to convey as accessible to them as possible. So if it's helping them navigate a space, you need to think through what are all of your access points? You know, where are your decision points? How are you going to help them wrap their brain around what they're actually navigating, whether it's a city block or a healthcare environment or something like that? Yeah, I, I want to get into that's great. I want to get into wayfinding. I'm curious how you approach those kinds of projects. Like, what's your process for designing successful wayfinding? 
So I think with any project, you want to start out with a lot of research. So if you're doing wayfinding and it's around a place that's already been developed, you're going to, you know, do some observation. You're going to try to navigate yourself. You're going to look for where are the places that you're confused. You can also observe others and see if there's points of confusion for them. If you're designing wayfinding for a development that is not in place yet, you're going to be working with an architect, city planner, you know, the teams that are doing that to understand what are their goals and where do they want people to understand how to navigate through those spaces. So I think, you know, that's kind of the first step in in kind of wrapping your brain around it. Then you kind of can put ideas to paper and, and segment the different zones, understand what are the key destination points and how do I want to route someone there? If it, if I'm changing a behavior or a habit, or if it, it seems confusing, I may need a multi-stepped, whether it's a signage approach or a change to something in the landscape. If you're outside, you need to think through those things. When you start thinking conceptually and working with your team and other collaborators, whether they're other stakeholders or your client, you'll want to get to a point where everyone is on the same page and we can start to move into doing things like mock-ups. And Cliff probably has wonderful stories about different ways that they've tested things to see, are our assumptions correct? You know, we might think something is straightforward because, again, we know this kind of high-level overview of the paths that we want someone to take. But we really do need to test those assumptions. And we might need to rejigger from there. Um, and then obviously, once all those final decisions are made, then you're moving into production and working with fabrication partners and those types of things. Yeah, I want to learn more about that. But I'm, I'm curious if there's this like, because it sounds like you're, I love you, you said trying to root someone in a place like that, <laughs> that really resonates. You're trying to, it seems like you're trying to create this like human connection to that space. Is there thought of this is way too much? <laughs> and we want to pull it back because I got to think that a successful wayfinding system is like not so like I loved that wayfinding system like or that's like so in your face yeah how do you make those choices about like scale and amount in terms of like what's populating the space I feel my inclination a lot of times is to to pull back and not to do too much you don't want to be too overbearing I did um, a project quite a long time ago for a healthcare, a small healthcare institution. And the existing signage had layers and layers of, I think it was at least four different languages. They were trying to place every destination on every sign in four languages. And we came in as like, okay, let me introduce you to icons and symbols that can hopefully reduce some of these things where you can maybe introduce multiple languages in a certain place at the, the upfront part of the experience. And then familiarize people with, you know, following symbols or, or different things that are repetitive that they can use to then navigate themselves once they get past ma- either a major gateway point or specific entry points. So I feel that I tend to be wanting to peel the layers away and keep things simple and high level and then present the details when you need them and at the right point. I'm curious how branding plays into it. And I'm not asking, like, people might think, oh, branding, like, there's a logo more on like, how do you kind of create this consistent feel and look by design so that you can sort of know that you're in this kind of consistent place? Yeah, I have so many thoughts on that. And even just talk to clients about your brand is more than your logo. So yes, it's important to be there, but how can your space? So if we're thinking about maybe corporate office spaces where they want to incorporate their brand, but they're not sure how, maybe their brand has a color palette that is too off-putting. So you have to find ways to 
do it in a way that it can support anything that has their corporate identity on it um, will work in the space. And then also, you know, remind them it's, it's not just about your logo, it's about your culture. And there's this quote, I wish I knew who said it. <laughs> I would give them so much credit. Um, but your space is branded whether you choose to brand it or not. And a lot of times we're meeting with clients and they're, there's so many missed opportunities where just a subtle material change or, you know, a subtle change in the environment can convey something so much more than they're already doing. Um, so you can have kind of subtle impact and you can also have very deliberate impact. And that's where you might want to go in and say there will be a three-dimensional sign with your logo here, but then you're looking to really engage your company in a specific culture. Culture is really important to the brand. So you can get really creative when you start to go down those paths and aren't limited to just your corporate identity and mm -hmm. Pantone colors and <laughs> taglines and all of those things that are important touch points for a brand. But when you really get into a space, you have so much opportunity to move beyond that and share other stories and messages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I do think when design is really good, you don't even see it, right? It just, it just works. So my question is, what do you think is lost in a space or an experience when the graphics experience or the graphic experience isn't fully considered? Well, you definitely lose your sense of place. It kind of goes back to that sentiment of your space is branded, whether you choose to brand it or not. If you're missing those opportunities to make something memorable, um, make something easy to explore, you can really create something off-putting or send a message that you're not intending to send. It could be on accident. I think that design can be really thoughtful and integrated in a way so that, again, if you're adding signage or you know, applying something to an existing space, it doesn't feel like an afterthought. And that's when, you know, your thoughts on scale and materiality become really important so that it doesn't create this odd juxtaposition and it does kind of fade into the background, but it feels so good, right? It's like the examples of some of the great brands of even just thinking through things with, you know, how easy it is to the experience at an Apple store or using a phone or different things where you don't really have to think. And that's why it's so nice. It's very distilled down to its simplest form and it gives you just what you need. Yeah. I mean, is there any better feeling than like just before you're about to be lost and then you like <laughs> oh. see, and it's just like, that's just like, it's like the moment before a sneeze, you know, it's just like <laughs> the best feel like, yes, okay, I am doing the right thing. I'm in the right place. I'm going the right way. Yeah, it's it. like that little golden ticket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a delight. So I love it. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing your perspectives. Really nice. Absolutely. Listeners, to learn more about Katie's work, check out her Instagram at katiemuse.creative. That's K-A-Y-T-E muse.creative. And check out SEGD at SEGD.org. Okay, Katie. Stay with us, and we'll bring Cliff Selbert into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's the museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today. 
and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum Magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back. Katie and I are joined by our special guest, Cliff Selbert. Cliff is a founding partner of Selbert Perkins Design, a collaboration between him and Robin Perkins and their team, uh, where they have created some of the world's most distinguished landmarks, including the iconic and dramatic gateway at LAX, Los Angeles International Airport in California. He is a licensed landscape architect, a current member and former board member of the Society for Experiential Graphic Design, and the American Society of Landscape Architects. Cliff's designs are iconic reminders that the built environment can be art that communicates with people. Cliff, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. And thanks, Katie. That was wonderful. Very great answers. Don't ask me those same questions. I don't, I don't know the answers. Yeah, that's it. She's, she's already figured it out, so we can talk about all kinds of other stuff. To start with you, Cliff, um, you know, Katie kind of alluded to this, but you know, with your background and landscape architecture, have you always seen landmarks as important to our experience in the built environment? Absolutely. I feel like landmarks are key to our wayfinding experience in the environment. When we go to a city, uh, we, we see the Eiffel Tower, we see the Statue of Liberty. That's what we're going for. We're, you know, listening to the previous questions, bigger is better for us. We, we want to establish giant landmarks as your orientation device. And the, by the time you get to read a sign, hopefully you already know where you are. Mm. Um, so I, I feel like bigger is always better. Is that built into like our biology as humans, right? Where before <laughs> maps, we would say, meet me by that giant tree that we all know, or I'm wayfinding by that mountain. Are we playing off of this like deep innate? I think so. We've done a lot of work in the Middle East. And what was amazing to me about that work is when we got there, there were no signs and there were no maps. And they asked us to invent a sign program that would take you through an entire region, a whole emirate of Abu Dhabi, for example, or, or a giant hospital. And we would come to the table with signs and then we would, for pedestrians, we would show them maps. They had never read a map. Maps didn't exist for them. So landmarks were the only way to find your way. Take a, a turn at the red garbage can. And that's how it was. So we had to invent from scratch. And most people don't, if they've never seen a map, they don't get it. So you have to give them symbols and landmarks as their starting point, And eventually they find their way. And when they get to a place, it has to have a sense of place. So what, what the heck is that? It has to have a sense of center mm. is, is what I think I've figured out over the years. <laughs> you know, uh, Kevin Lynch defined a lot of ways of moving through cities uh, many years ago. But the sense of center, so you can orient yourself within a place is critical, whether you're in your living room, your office, or a city. If you can't figure that out, you can't orient. So we really aim to find those kinds of spaces and orient people within those spaces by landmarks. Signage and words are last for us. Uh, I frankly try to avoid that whenever possible. Like Katie was saying, you know, less, less is more. And right. it's not right. like scale is good and less is more after, after the fact. Right. Yeah. One of the projects we did in, in uh, the Middle East, the client said to us, show, show us the minimum we can do. Sometimes our goal is to show the maximum. But I learned on that one is like, start with nothing. And what's the minimum we need to find our way? It's a very interesting way to approach a project. And you had asked a question to Katie too, about how do you approach this? 
you really try to establish the person's journey. Where do I start? I start at home usually. I look at the computer. I look <laughs> at a map. And I walk out the door and I'm immediately lost. I'm in this business because I'm always lost. I never know where I'm going, never know where the heck I am. Uh, so that actually inspired me to try to do this in the first place is how do I orient people like me yeah. who are always backwards? So to that point, can you describe a landmark that has made a lasting impression on you? Well, Statue of Liberty in the Eiffel Tower and uh, landmarks in Egypt are really the inspiration. Robert and I did some traveling in Egypt many years ago, and the monuments in Egypt are incredible, of course, as you know, from the pyramids to the obelisks to the temples. And that's how people found their way. And that inspired us really onward. You know, studying your work uh, and Silver Perkins design, you design everything from logos to landmarks. And I've also heard you say that landmarks are now the selfie moments. Um, yes. Yeah. When you're in these spaces, what's the goal of the logo? What's the goal of the landmark? Are they the same? Are they different? Do they overlap? I don't think they have to be the same at all. LAX is a great example. The logo and the landmark specifically don't look like each other at all, but they interpret a visual language, I think, together and they're combined together. The forms of that gateway actually are repeated throughout the airport. I don't know if people understand the subtlety of that design, but those columns are repeated in every way, shape, and form throughout every sign. It's a very subtle device, but it, it integrates the whole airport together. Color and light are also very critical to the airport. And all that combines together to create an ambiance and a sense of place. Can you describe for folks who haven't seen that gateway? Like, so if we're approaching, what, what are we seeing? Well, first of all, we're the original brief was to be able to see it from an airplane ah, 30,000 so. feet away. So that immediately, uh, our first response was, wow, this should be pretty big. <laughs> so we, we uh, developed it as a 200-foot-high circle of towers. Of course, the airport said, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, you're going to run an airplane into that. So we compromised at 100 feet. Uh, and I think there are 28 towers. They range in scale from 18 feet up to 100. So they give you a sense of takeoff as you're entering the airport. They, get, they go from small to large. And when you land, they bring you down into the airport and you can see it from an airplane. You can see it upon landing. So it truly has become an, an iconic identifier for L.A. and a real welcoming moment as a gateway from around the world, which is the intent. Uh, when you approach it in a car, you, there are about five to six, seven different ways into that airport. The circle sort of balanced all the different entries into the airport. So no matter where you enter, you enter through through some of these towers and it creates a tremendous gateway experience. It's, it's really exciting. Yeah. Um, I love it. We're honored that it even got built. <laughs> you, <know. laughs> you started to, you mentioned a bit of your process. I, I'm so curious if sort of like the beginning, middle and end, and particularly that middle part as you're creating these experiences, some of them are quite large and maybe hard for a client to visualize. How are you conveying your concepts, your ideas to kind of get their notion again on something that can be either that scale from a size standpoint, or let's even get into the scale from a breadth of a weight, maybe a giant wayfinding system. How do you describe that to them? Yeah, I, I have to admit a lot of our work seems to scare people, <laughs> particularly, particularly on the East Coast. Uh, we approach it through model build, building, through videos, through constructing the experience as best we can through models and through videos and through drawings 
And typically people who hire us, I hope and I think, are looking for something dramatic, looking for something memorable. And we also exuberantly present the idea. You have to passionately sell your idea. I think the hardest part of this business is selling your great idea. Coming up with a great idea, I think that's kind of easy. Uh, you know, we can come up with 100 great ideas. Convincing our clients that it's a great idea and paying for it, that's the hardest part of our business, I mm -hmm. think. This is an experience that you're trying to craft. Yeah. And so you have to yeah. kind of get it into their mind. I'm just wondering, like, has VR come into this industry yes, yet? Yes, I think it's the next big wave is VR and AI. Personally, we're, as a group, trying to figure out how to do personal navigation you know, the car, auto navigation now, you can, your self-driving car can take you anywhere. Well, how, how can people benefit from that same technology? I think robots and AI are taking over everything. And even in our profession, how are we going to involve our own profession so we all still have a job? I'm beginning to you know, work with our in-house team. How do we take our eyewear and have it tell us about the depth of field? How can we take that self-driving technology into our eyewear? and self-drive ourselves through an airport or anywhere else. I think that's part of the future. Uh, I do think static signs will be here forever, but I think our telephones need to interact with those static signs. So, yeah, augmented reality and yeah, yeah, that's cool. So I think our phones and our eyewear and maybe our, like a cane or something, these elements, we have to start personalizing the technology to us and have that technology assist us in our wayfinding, in our experience of the universe. Yeah, love it. I had a similar question about, you know, how do you convince clients? And I think you make a good point about you've got to really be passionate about what you're presenting. But have you ever, you know, had a client that you felt was asking you to go too far or too much? I mean, I know we're all interested in the scale and the uh, drama of all of your design solutions, but have you ever tried to scale a client back because they thought they should layer in too many things or have too many of those static signs? That's a good question. Uh, I would say no. <laughs> <laughs> We're always, they're always trying to pull us back. I think we have clients who always say, oh, give me something I've never seen. Give me the greatest thing in the world. We bring it to the table and it shocks them. <laughs> and they say, okay, let's go back to where we started. Uh, so I think in our experience, we have, I haven't had a client stretch us beyond where we'd like to go yet. I'd love to have a client like that. You know, most of our clients and the focus of our work is public work. We're working in the public realm. So I think we're starting to address some real issues of inclusion. And how do we really work in the public realm? When we talk about branding, we're talking about branding places, typically, rather than branding products. Uh, and our focus and our interest is really the public realm. How do people move around places around the world in any language? And what we're seeing more and more is issues of shade. I think one of the more interesting projects we're doing now is studying the shade available to people in L.A. Oh, and developing shade structures and bus shelters and things that really serve the populations, the underserved populations of America and of L.A. A lot of issues here with sunshine. We sell sunshine. <laughs> we have a lot of sunshine. <laughs> the surplus. The is <laughs> we have a lot and we don't have enough shade. So people are sitting at bus shelters thousands of bus shelters around the city with no shade. That's becoming a social issue. And I think as designers, we're obligated to help that issue and help the inclusion issue and the equity issues of shade right now are, are a real focus for us. Uh, now also wayfinding and helping people find their way in an environment is critical. We want it to be easy for people 
So we're less interested in branding sneakers these days <laughs> than we are in branding cities and helping people find their way around cities and places. It feels like a like you're doing a public good, right? You're creating this experience. Yeah, oh, I mean, a public good can be visual and aesthetic, but then there's this other utility pieces that are coming into play. How do you center that work? Do you do research where you have people try things? You bring people into the into the design process? As much as possible, yes. We try to be a, a very inclusive process, collaborating through, you know, any, it used to be focus groups and actually meeting with people. Now it's all become digital, and which is actually a better way to get people's opinions, I think, because they're more free to speak about what they really feel when they're online. But uh, I think, you know, the process has to be inclusive. You got to bring in the community. You got to connect to the community. And that's our job, whether it's a hospital, a classroom, or a city. The community has to feel like it's about them and certainly not about the designer. It's really more about telling the story and exploring that that story and how deep can you go? What's the civic memory? I don't think people have any civic memory. Nobody knows what happened 80 years ago. And so part of our job is to educate people, inform, educate, and entertain them through the elements of their environment. In graphics, there's one tiny piece, frankly, to me. Uh, it's really more about the spaces, the trees, the shade, the benches, how we accommodate our public spaces really says a lot about ourselves and about our cities. Yeah. That was leading into one of my next questions, was, which is story. You mentioned, you know, I think it was, mm. I also saw on your website, every place has a story, every story has a place. I love that. Thank you. What does that <laughs> mean? Like, can we dig into that more? Like, do you, are you using storytelling as a tool in design or is it an outcome of the design? Is it both? It's, uh, it's usually, the story, st we start a lot with a story, if we can, uh, and trying to find the history of that place. And I think it all started very much with Seven Hills Park, a funny little park over in, in Somerville. It, it just hit on us that, gee, Seven Hills Park, Rome is built on Seven Hills. Well, so Somerville. <laughs> and we, let, let's tell that story. And it just clicked, you know, and ever since that's been our core device so we've been doing it for over 30 years, and now it seems like, oh, it's the in thing. Everybody talks about story. We've always talked about story. It's always been core to everything we do and every idea we have. And if there isn't a story, uh, it, it's always, well, there usually is a story. It might be a historic story, a geography story, a nature story. We find that story, and we'll embed that into the projects as much as possible. Uh, LAX, for example, might be a little more esoteric, but the intent is that it displays the energy, the unity, and diversity of LA. So millions of colors are unified in a ring of lights. And that that's the deeper story there. Sometimes the story is much more obvious, like Seven Hills Park, where you, each story is about the element of that hill. Like the bus shelter project right now integrates stories of every community it could be in. Artists from the community can integrate their art into these shelters so it becomes a community resource and a community cultural identifier all at the same time. I was going to ask a question, just kind of shifting gears a little bit. I had seen a presentation that you gave recently, and you talked about how you're actually helping clients rewrite bylaws. So you're working with municipalities and you're getting involved at that stage. So when you're doing that, you know, how do you find the right balance that's open-ended enough for others to kind of partake? And then dovetailing that, um, I thought it was so interesting and savvy of you listing your one of your services as revenue generation. And how does that play into things that you're doing for cities? Cities don't have any money right now. 
So we've had many, many cities come to us and say, how can signage give us a return? Mm -hmm. You know, how can we make money on signs? Mm -hmm. So 10 years ago, everybody hated billboards. They probably still do. <laughs> but now billboards are becoming the savior of cities <laughs> because they can generate revenue. So it's not as simple anymore to just put up a revenue generating billboard because all of those billboards have been taken out of the zoning codes. You can't have them anymore. So many cities have come back to us now and said, can you help us rewrite our sign ordinances to accommodate revenue generation in a sensitive way, in a creative way, without adding more blight back into the city, but giving us a powerful revenue tool? So we've been involved with many cities doing just that, rewriting their billboard ordinances or signed ordinances, their branding ordinance, sponsorship ordinances. So it's, it's really gratifying to be able to come in at the core of the zoning code yeah, wow. and, start write, and start writing the guidelines. So the goal is to how do you make that creative, practical, and, and eliminate clutter while in some people's minds you're creating clutter. So it's a real balancing act. And we've been in many civic meetings for hours and hours and hours hammering out the details of how, how you can handle this stuff with lighting, you know, messaging, freedom of speech. It's a very potentially complicated world, but uh, we're having a lot of fun doing it because we can define, you know, like an architectural building code. We're establishing new codes around the world for these, uh, for the work we do. So it sets a great foundation for us and other designers uh, working around the world. But it, it's interesting. It's it's not a very sexy uh, <laughs> the part of that. I didn't think I'd be doing this. Right. Uh, but uh, even as I started out as a landscape architect in Providence, Rhode Island, I found myself doing this, writing the how you approach every neighborhood, give it a story, give it a meaning, give it personality, but also get the city to be part of the solution. So we're finding a whole new territory of writing these Yeah, codes. working it from both ends. I mean, you yeah. can create the most amazing thing, but if there's not a code or an ordinance that allows for it, then it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And it comes back to convincing the public it's even a good idea. So that's a challenge. Yeah. Let's go to audience questions. Audience question here from Chad. So we will unmute Chad and take it away, Chad. Hey, guys. Thank you very much for doing this. How do you find clients um, or how have you gotten to the place where you find these clients that are passionate about that kind of the same things that you do that kind of allow you to get these large things like LAX and things like that built um, and get it done, which maybe helps you be less jaded about those clients. So, and then with that, do you turn other clients or potential clients away that might not be a good fit? And how do you get to that place? If that makes sense. By the time we have a client, that's usually a good fit. We've, they understand us, we understand them. And and we can usually find our way to a great project. Uh, we don't have that many clients these days who resist what we do. Although I will be frank, a lot of architects are scared by what we do. They don't like us to touch their buildings. Uh, so we don't, we don't touch the buildings anymore. <laughs> we create landmarks that are separate. They're in the landscape and, uh, and it's, it's challenging. I have to admit, but uh, we we have found if we if we do something really subtle, our clients will look at us and say, "Well, we hired you to be much more interesting than this." So we have a tendency to start with the outrageous and call and be pulled back to the practical. Although practical, you know, it has to be practical no matter what. So even our most outrageous ideas are always buildable. 
always helpful and I think always an asset to the cities they're in. Uh, but finding clients who are really on the same page, sometimes they find us, sometimes we find them. And we have found clients in other countries are more open to big ideas because sometimes we go into an environment that doesn't really have anything. Uh, you know, empty spaces, empty places, cities that don't even exist yet. So sometimes we can start thinking in a very big way uh, without being hampered by the existing condition. Uh, certainly within an existing condition, you have to be sensitive and comes back to, again, inclusion. What is this place really about? And trying to include people in the story. If they can get really included in the story, they'll buy into it, everything. If they don't believe in the story, you can't get very far. Yeah. I mean, it's clients that I've worked with kind of run the gamut of um, some of really leaning on you to tell them exactly what to do. And that's great because mm -hmm. you're really the advisor that they are looking for. And then, you know, others are playing it safe. So you're always trying to see how far can I push that boundary. So I think it depends on the the client relationship in terms of what I've had. Um, and it also just speaks to if you're going to Selbert Perkins, like you're looking for that really expansive, um, you know, landmark design idea. And I think it's, it speaks really highly of Cliff's process and his team and just the reputation that they have that people are entrusting you with, you know, really pushing the envelope for them. Thank you. I, I think I should add though, I think big, but the one who really actually gets it done is is my partner Robin. She comes up with these ideas. <laughs> She's the uh, I'm I'm always there, and I come up with a lot of ideas too. But I think the ones you've really seen get built are, are often Robin's ideas, and then our partners John Lutz, Andy, and Mike. Uh, there we're a partnership of people who thinks alike. So I get a lot of the credit, but they do a lot more than I do at this point. And you should be interviewing them. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your questions. And thank you to Katie and Cliff. This was such a great conversation. Uh, listeners, if you want to learn more about Cliff's work and Selbert Perkins design, visit selbertperkins.com. And now we'll take a quick break and return for our weekly dose of good design. All right, it's my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will go first. So this week, um, I'm very excited about gardening season. I'm a big gardener. Uh, it's getting into full swing, which is just like, I am ready. Um, so I started my seeds inside as I do every year and the warm weather is coming. I've always had so much trouble starting my seeds inside. I put my little pots in the window and I just hope for the best with the sun. Here's what happens. They always get really quickly tall and little thin stems because they're all like reaching towards the sun. And so I haven't gotten that many successful transplants from inside to outside. Um, so as I often do, I'm always trying to take my garden to the next level. And so this year I bought sort of like an indoor growing shelf. It's like modular. It has LEDs. My wife's like, oh my gosh, this thing is in our house. But anyway, it's called the stack and grow system. Uh, it is pretty simple. It's like a plastic shelving unit that everyone's probably had, like the flat pieces and then the tubes. But the key is that these LED lights um, are adjustable on the supports. Uh, and that's cool because you can have them really close to the plants as they're like sprouting. And then they can, you know, you can raise the lights as, as they start to grow. It's going, my seedlings look 
great. Uh, so I'm loving this thing. Um, the kids love it. They like love to water these plants, maybe a little too much. Um, but it's become this kind of like little family activity with our little like LED growing area. Um, but yeah, I also just can't wait to be outside with these plants. So anyway, you can check it out. It's called the Stack and Grow System and I got it at gardeners.com uh, and we'll post a link. Okay, that was mine. Uh, and let's go to Katie. What, what are you thinking about this week? Uh, well, my um, piece of inspiration links to wanting to get outdoors like you and scale like Cliff. This is just serendipitous. But um, yeah, something that's inspiring me to get back outside is a 150 foot sculpture that is still thankfully at the decor of a um, by DeWitt Gottfried. And he he works with um, core 10 steel shapes. They usually kind of start as circular shapes. Maybe you've seen the piece. Um, but I I love it. And I want to go back to visit it um, because you can climb in and out of it. It works with the landscape and just being really inspired by his work in other locations where his um, sculptures appear on rooftops and in corners of buildings um, and also in memorial locations to um, celebrate things that were destroyed in disasters. Um, but it's really beautiful in terms of the simplicity of the material, but then the scale and movement that he gets. So hopefully you guys can check that out in person soon. <laughs> yeah, that feels like a great outdoor safe <laughs> activity to be yes. doing. Yep. Very nice. Thank you. All right, Cliff, what's your weekly dose? Uh, you know, my weekly dose is uh, probably a pretty obvious one. I, I'm one of those guys who's very analog, but also living in the digital age. So what I find my favorite things are, are my pencil it's about as analog as it gets and it's just awesome and I'm, it's always with me the other thing that's always with me uh unfortunately is my phone <laughs> uh, so <laughs> the combination of I those, love two, that, those things, two things yeah those two things are kind of at the core of of what i i think are incredible design tools and uh both hopefully part of our big future mm -hmm. so those are my Happy design things at the day. I will say my my kids are into pencils, so they're not going away anytime soon. So we still a, need that's them. A good design. I love people who can draw. We gotta we still draw. Totally agreed. That's our show. Thank you again to Katie Muse and Cliff Selbert for joining us and for an awesome conversation and all of your questions. This was a lot of fun. We'll post links to the resources we discussed on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. And thanks to our live podcast audience. This was so cool. As always, you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. Plus we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. This episode was written, edited, and produced by the amazing Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom and our editing support from Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you for listening, and we'll talk again next week.